last uh, Sunday here at Cornerstone. They're going to be moving tomorrow to uh, to go to Atlanta, where they'll be assuming the position there with Biblical Ministries uh, uh, worldwide. And uh, we need to be praying for them uh, in their uh, their ministry. Uh, Steve has been a wonderful um, uh, blessing here, uh, just serving on the staff along with the pastors. He's been our our pastor of missions. He's been um, served as our Awana uh, commander, and he's uh, produced a number of videos over the last uh, few years, both he and Jenny together, that uh, have both uh, presented the gospel and also uh, featured uh, various things that God is doing at Cornerstone uh, that we wanted uh, people to uh, know about in the community. Steve has uh, been instrumental in the development of our web uh, website, uh, the Festival of Treats. I remember the video presentation that you put together for that, and a lot of people worked on that uh, project, but uh, Steve's leadership uh, in that was also very instrumental. And all of the children of this church have been blessed uh, through Steve, not just through the Awana uh, ministry, but the child protection policy that we have uh, that is in place uh, now is in place uh, very largely because of the work and the vision of uh, Steve uh, McCullough. And just as many uh, wonderful things could be said about uh, his wife, uh, Jenny, uh, who's been a wonderful sister in the Lord to all of us and uh, Wonderful wife to Steve. Uh, Steve would not be the man that he is. In fact, we don't want to think of the kind of man that he would be apart from uh, from Jenny. And together, you guys have been a wonderful team and you brought great blessing uh, to uh, to this church. And we're going to treasure that in our hearts forever. This church bears the imprint of your ministry and we'll continue to do so. And we, we pray that you will bear the imprint of, of the ministry here and that God will prosper you and your ministry uh, in Atlanta. What I'd like to do is to have them uh, come up here. And I'm also I'm going to ask any elders that are in the room if you would come up. And uh, we're just going to lay hands on them and pray. If there's any elders of Cornerstone that are here, you could join us up here on the... Uh, on the platform. Only two elders are at church today. Yeah, they were the rest were in the first service. Yeah, that's convenient. Uh, now, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Steve and for Jenny, their precious little boy. What a blessing they have been to uh, to all of us. Uh, over the years, what a gift they have been. They have been a very meaningful, vital part of our gospel inheritance. And we we claim them, Lord, and we cherish them. We cherish you and love you all the more because of the gift of your love as we've experienced that through Steve and Jenny. We just pray for them right now, Lord, as they are embarking on this phase of their life. Uh, that you would prosper them as they journey across the country to Atlanta, and that while they are there, that you would uh, prosper their ministry in the profoundest of ways, as through through video, Lord, as they use their gifts to put videos together, that they would be able to get the message out about biblical ministries worldwide and and the worldwide vision of this uh, organization. We also pray that through 
the videos that they put together, that they would be able to tell the stories of many, many missionaries and of what you are doing out on the field and the needs that continue to be there. We pray also that through the videos they put together that the gospel message would be told again and again, speaking to others, portraying for others the glory of the saving gospel through Jesus Christ. So we release them, Lord, to your care and know that you will bless them. And we look forward to hearing many things in the days to come of how you will use them. And as we hear those things, we will we will reflect upon the blessing that was ours to have known them, to have had some impact in their lives and to have had them with us for this season. We just commit them to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, by the way, there's a flyer that's in your bulletin uh, that tells you a little bit about their ministry. Their support right now, uh, by the grace of God, is at probably just under 80 uh, percent. And uh, so there's still a need for support. Uh, but I know that many people in this church body are supporting them. We're supporting them as a church uh, also. But if the Lord would lead you to explore their ministry and uh, and add to that support, then Feel free to follow the Lord's leading in that. Well, um, it's my privilege to introduce to you our speaker for uh, this morning, uh, Pastor uh, Jay uh, Wechter. Uh, Jay Wechter is a graduate from Christian Heritage uh, College and also a graduate from the Master's Seminary. Presently, he teaches theology and apologetics and evangelism at the, uh, the Master's uh, College. Uh, in addition to that, he's often speaking in various churches and, and, and so forth. He's, he's founded a ministry entitled The Gospel for Life that is all about um, just uh, coming alongside of churches and helping them and coming to grips with all that the gospel entails and uh, beyond that to help them to bring the gospel to bear upon all of life and ministry and then to present that gospel to uh, the lost. And so we appreciate his passion for the gospel. He is a friend to this church and has spoken here before, and we're happy to have our brother here uh, with us again. Um, so without any further ado, let's welcome our brother Jay uh, Wechter as he comes. Jay, if you can have a seat here. Um, he's asked me to read the scripture before he preaches today. Uh, so let me have you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 3.12 through chapter 4, verse 6. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He says to them, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. 
But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may God bless our brother Jay as he comes to open up God's word to us. Thank you, Pastor Melton, very much. It's good to be with you again today. It's been quite a while since I've been here. I think the last time was uh, your conference on postmodernism. Is that right? So greetings to you from the brethren at the Master's College and the Christian, many Christian friends I have in the Santa Clarita Valley. Well, while I was mingling with your members this morning, a number of people said to me, The people at Cornerstone Church are incredibly faithful to one another. There is a true community here that is remarkable. And that doesn't surprise me because uh, the more clear our view of the glory of God in the face of Christ, the more dynamic our body life will be. Because when you bring people together that have this same sight of God's glory in the face of Christ, it releases in the body the ability to care for one another with with an equality that is unmatched anywhere else in the world. The cross is the great leveler of people. And uh, the gospel just slays that false notion that we've got some here who have achieved the standard and some here who are still working on it, bless your heart. See, the gospel just cuts that to the quick. It says, no, Christ has achieved for us. Therefore, I can be real with you. You can be real with me. I accept you as you are for Christ's sake. I see that in this body, and it's just such a source of joy to me. Well, our passage this morning is is something that's thrilled my heart for years. I've labored in this text for many years. I've preached it to my own soul for many years, and it's a privilege to preach it to you. It's still a daunting task, though, as a forgiven sinner, to try to explain the glory of God to other forgiven sinners. Well, I'm still learning what it is, uh, and still... Uh, very much in need of searching it out because the glory of God is not made sensible to our physical senses. We've never seen it with our physical eyes. We've seen reflected beams of glory in the creation, but we've never seen the essential glory of God. We have seen that only by faith in the word of God, enabled by the Holy Spirit. And I certainly agree with with Orthodox Christian 
dogma that says true religion, that is the religion of Jesus Christ, the religion produced by the gospel, true religion is above the natural powers of men and women. In other words, not by uh, your own powers of, of self-dedication, self-reformation, not even by the powers of reasoning can you reason your way to God. True religion is the product of the Holy Spirit shining into our hearts and giving us this sight of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, in the last 2,000 years of church history, this has been a truth that has been lost or clouded over at times. In fact, the gospel has suffered at the hands of those who claim to be its friends. And it's been often pushed down from its biblical description as the power of God, Romans 1 16 and 17, and the gospel has often been turned into something depicted as what men are able to do, doable, what men are capable of performing. When actually the scriptural reality is that a mighty working of God's sovereign power is needed in order for a person to become saved. We plant our very hope on the fact that God has done that work. In fact, when Paul is exalting all the blessed things we have in the heavenlies, and he's just going through this catalog in Ephesians chapter 1, he indicates that the power that God has exerted toward you is of the same magnitude as God exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So we tend to look at our new birth as something we accomplished by believing a set of truths. When actually our new birth is accomplished by God, monergistically, not us helping, unilaterally, not us cooperating and participating, but God's action upon us in our state of spiritual deadness. And so this mighty power that resurrected us from our spiritual grave is what allowed us to be able to behold who God really is in Christ. Now, revivals down through church history have always been checkered affairs where the true gospels preached in places and other places it's been peddled and uh, the outcome has been somewhat mixed. In fact, 250 years ago, when the Great Awakening, this, this immense revival which was sweeping America and England, uh, a revival that actually Jonathan Edwards was a part of in his preaching, uh, Edwards was concerned that some of the statistics about how many who had really been saved from this revival, some of those statistics might not be 100% conversions, but some might not be genuine whatsoever. And this moved Jonathan Edwards to write his book, The Religious Affections, that book was his magnum opus. It's recognized as his most, his most influential work. And in that book, Edwards suggests that we need a litmus test, an acid test, to really determine who has true salvation. Now, we're not going to go around and, and inspecting your fruit and my fruit, see whose fruit's real. What he's really suggesting is there are clear evidences as outlined in Scripture that mark out a genuinely converted person. And when you read through Edward's book, the one mark of salvation, which is indispensable, that identifies a person as truly having come to Christ, is this mark. They will have a spirit-produced sight and savor for the precious things of God. They will have an eternal value system they did not possess before. And so Edwards presses his case in this book, saying that the truly converted man has seen Christ spiritually as true treasure, as that pearl of great price, as that treasure in a field. 
whereas the world has not seen Christ in this way. They only know of him historically. So Edwards, Edwards constantly stresses that the religious affections, that is a heart hunger, taste and savor for the things of God, that is the fruit and evidence of a new heart. This is the indispensable mark. And these affections are bestowed at the moment of salvation. And then like a spring in a watch, they continue to drive the Christian life. Your spiritual disciplines, devotion, fruitfulness, seeking God daily are driven by your spiritual affections. You have joy in your spiritual duties, not drudgery in your spiritual duties. This is a mark of being converted. And so once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that newly born child of God, the Spirit of God confirms to his child that God's glory and your happiness are now bound up forever together in the person of Christ. They're bound up together. You see, Satan cannot counterfeit that mindset. Satan cannot counterfeit that sentiment that God's glory and your happiness are bound up together in the person of Christ. As hard as he tries, he cannot do that. Now, Satan can produce a hypocrite, but he cannot produce a spiritual affection. That is only what the Holy Spirit can do. And so our sermon proposition this morning is to see God's glory in the face of Christ is to be a saved person. Now, how important is the glory of God in the face of Christ? It is so important that it is the way in which God saves you, according to our text. To show you the glory of God in the face of Christ brings you out of death into life, plants in you a faculty to drink in the glory of God as your highest good and your highest enjoyment. God saves by giving a sight of His glory in the face of Christ. And this is a couple of verses above where, where Pastor, Vincent, Pastor Milton read, just a couple of verses above, it says that by continuing to behold this glory, we are transformed. In other words, sanctification is driven and ongoing as we continue to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then finally, we've got this amazing promise in 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, for we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. When you finally behold the glory of God, no longer in the mirror of Scripture, but face to face with Christ, instantly you will be glorified yourself. See, our whole Christian life is glory driven. Saved, sanctified, and ultimately glorified by seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is our destiny, brethren. This is what we're called to. This is how God is preparing us to live with Him forever. He's enlarging your heart to take in more of His glory. He's enlarging your heart for that insurmountable weight of glory to come. And that's why we must make this our business, to study the glory of God. To often warm our hearts at that hearth, that fire of His glory. Feeding those affections. Making sure those affections are inflamed and not becoming lukewarm. Well, our text tells us that it is but a small portion of the human race that's seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's by an act of sovereign grace that we've done so. But for the majority of the human race, we're told in verses 3 and 4, of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, we're told that the God of this world, that is a, is a reference to the scope of His influence. We're told in 1 John 5, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. So the so the gospel's gloriousness is hidden from the lost. The gospel's true character as the excellence and the self-revelation of God in his son is not apprehended by the unbelieving person. And of course, the scripture tells us why the natural man, the unsaved man has foolishness bound up in his heart and therefore he regards the gospel as foolish. And God testifies to the fact that men are born dead to the things of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. That doesn't mean these are all atheists. It just means that people are born dead to the things of God. They're aware of God, but they're blind to his glory. Thus, the precious things of God are not viewed by them as precious and as treasure. See, that's where that work of the Spirit's necessary. What is your true treasure? Boy, Christ talks about treasure in the Sermon on the Mount. How important is treasure? You review it. You think about it. You guard it. You add to it. You talk about it. You meditate on it. Your treasure leads you around just like a little puppy dog is led around. That's how important your treasure is. It rules your life. And that's why seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ is so vital. It puts true treasure in your heart as the knowledge of God and his glory. Now, here's the problem. When we fell in our first parents, Adam and Eve, there was a forfeiture of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says we all fall short of that glory. That intimates that there was a forfeiture of being able to see that glory, love that glory, and then reflect that glory by a life of obedience. A threefold forfeiture. We lost the sight of it. We lost our passion and heart for it. And we lost the ability to reflect that glory. Now, this means that salvation in Christ restores what that forfeiture lost for us. Salvation in Christ restores the sight of God's glory. It restores a passion for God's glory. And ultimately, it restores the ability to perfectly reflect God's glory. When someday you're presented publicly before the watching universe as the bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle, you will be perfectly able to reflect God's glory. When you are, when you are the new Jerusalem itself, uh, these, these precious stones faceted and fitted together, coming down out of heaven, the temple for the Holy Spirit fashioned by God, you will be able to reflect His glory perfectly. Brethren, that's our destiny. That's where we're headed. And so our vocation now is to begin drinking in that glory, beholding it, feeding upon it, looking after it, meditating on Scripture with a view to seeing that glory. I, I disciple about 12 guys, and I'm always, I'm always challenging these guys. Go to Scripture, look for portholes through which you can view God's glory. They're all over the place. Let me show you some. So I'll take them to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. These are access points to view the glory of God. Well, our text tells us that this sad state of mankind, that we're in darkness, this sad state of mankind is actually energized by Satan. The God of this world works day and night to conceal and veil the glory of Christ from those who are perishing. Satan is the blinder, the destroyer. Jesus refers to him as the murderer of souls in John 8. 48. Blinding, of mind, blinding the minds of men is Satan's business that he tirelessly pursues. 
And the spiritual darkness, which Satan energizes, actually began at the fall. And what, what was the fall based upon? It was based upon a lie about God. More specifically, the lie that Satan told in Eden was a lie about God's goodness. God is not good. If he were good, he would not withhold this one pleasure from you. God is actually threatened by your potential. And if you, if you just eat that fruit, you will realize your human potential becoming like God. And so all his threats that you will die, that, those are idle threats. And the fact that God is, is threatened by your potential, uh, all this adds up to one thing. You now have a rationale for running your own life. You can live a self-determined life because God is not good to you, nor is he trustworthy. All the rationale needed to run your own life is there. You can find your own. Uh, you can find right and wrong for yourself. Choose your own preferences. It's all up to you now. See, all that human potential movement, that humanism, that secularism was inherent in Satan's lie. It just has different permutations and expressions down through history. But it was all there present in that lie. And so Satan's lie drove a wedge into the heart of man and we became darkened in our understanding of God. We no longer saw God's glory and our happiness on the same page. We, never, we no longer saw God's glory and our good wrapped up together. We no longer saw God's will and glory and our well-being as being on the same page. Satan's wedge essentially drove those two apart. And every person you know who's unsaved is under the influence of that darkness. The original Edenic lie is still seized upon the hearts of men today. Though there's not a tree and fruit involved, that lie is still there fixed upon the hearts of men. People doubt that God is good to them and they run their own lives as a result. They're not thankful, it says in Romans 1. They speculate. They're attracted to lies. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so this lie has a very powerful effect. It's like a sooty veil that keeps men from seeing the glory of Christ as the sum of all divine excellence. This sooty veil over the heart prevents them from seeing Jesus as he really is, the radiant point of the universe, the clearest manifestation of God to the creature, the supreme object of our adoration, admiration, and love. That's all veiled by this darkness over the heart. So Satan's lie became an excuse to think negatively about God. And Satan holds men through philosophy, we're told, in Colossians 2.8. All manner of philosophy uh, is used by Satan to keep men from seeking the Lord and seeking Christ. And because the whole human race was created to be worshipers, created to be enthusiastic spectators of God's excellence, because we're because we're created to be worshipers, that's our identity by creation. If we're blind to the glory of God and we're created to be worshipers, where does our worshiping nature go? Toward created things. Isn't that the problem on planet Earth? We have a planet full of worshipers of created things. We've got a planet full of idolaters. It's because they're blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, see, this can only be overturned by a mighty act of God's sovereign grace. 
can only be overturned by knowing Christ as he's revealed in the gospel. No philosopher, I don't care how many degrees from Harvard he has, can reason his way to God. Say, well, maybe we've got this thing wrong. Maybe God is wonderful. Maybe we should submit to him. No one has ever reasoned their way to God. A sovereign working is required. No one ever takes God's side against their sin until their sin has fully been convicted by the Holy Spirit and is then forgiven. Until then, we are suspicious of God and it's the human revolution movement against God's mighty government. And see, the only way a sinful man can have love for a holy God is for for him to be forgiven and justified. In which case, the Father himself declares that person righteous because of Christ's redemptive work. That man man or woman who is justified is then properly aligned and set right in terms of God's holiness and righteousness. Prior to that, because man is still under sin and under God's condemnation, the response inside that person is going to be hostility, enmity, fear, suspicion, and preferred estrangement prior to that work of regeneration and justification. See, Christ is God's light. And as those who belong to God, He has dawned in our hearts. He is the morning star who's risen in His hearts. He is ruling on His throne in our hearts right now and someday on planet Earth globally. But that morning star has already taken up residence in your heart. And someday that dawn will become noonday sun. And that is when God's glory covers the earth as the ocean covers the sea floor. No gaps, no spaces, no vacuums. See, right now that star has already dawned in your heart. Someday it's going to fill the earth. But see, we cannot even imagine what God's glory is unless we see the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is, his identity as the image of God, creator, upholder, sustainer, lawgiver, prophet, priest, king, logos, lamb, lion, all his offices, all his resplendence, all the attributes of God focused in the God man. We must see who Christ is to see God's glory. Now, if you look up at the noonday sun, I don't recommend this on a July day. Uh, You're going to hurt your retina. In just a few moments, you're going to hurt the retina of your eyes. So also, man cannot behold God's unfiltered, unreflected majesty. What does it say in in Timothy? No one's seen God at any time. He dwells in unapproachable light. We cannot see Him or behold Him. His glory must be reflected through the face of the merciful Redeemer. And so the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, He is the light of God. Of the gospel. The gospel is that mechanism which restores our sight of God's glory. And so when we're confronted with Christ's glory, we we are confronted with the true likeness of God Himself. Hebrews 1 1 through 3. Christ is the radiance of God's glory, He's the exact representation, imprint, impress of God's glory and identity. Now, sometimes I use this example when I'm teaching at the Master's College. Uh, We look around our universe, we see amazing structures, incredible variety, color, beauty, uh, structures so large they they baffle our understanding. But if somehow you could be protected with a suit that kept you from being vaporized and you, you came within half a million miles of a star 
a hundred times bigger than our own sun, you really wouldn't learn any more about God's glory than you already know. You just have a moment of fear and terror as you looked at this giant fission site, fusion site, where fusion is taking place. It would, it would startle you. It would shock you. It would thrill you. But you wouldn't know any more about God's glory because God's glory is only known in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one who said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the very image of God and of man at the same time. And this is God's mystery. That the second person of the Godhead should be man in his true essence and stature according to the purposes of his creator. Remarkable. Christ as Logos emanates the brightness of the Father's glory. He's equal with God, yet he's clothed in our nature. This is the promised Messiah and this mystery that he be both God and man and able to die and mortal before raised immortal. This is the great mystery that was held in the bosom of God for all eternity. And it has now been made known through the, prophet, through the prophets and the apostles, it says in Romans 16, 25 and 26. The Lord Jesus Christ is an exalted man. He's taken humanity, he's raised it above angelic nature. He's going to take us, the redeemed, from dust to glory. He is the forerunner. He is our man in glory. The world to come shall be ruled by glorified men who are above angels. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. This is just one little ray of this glory of God in the face of Christ. The redemptive plan. The fact that God is putting his wisdom on display to angels by taking you from defiled dust to perfect, a perfect glorified individual. The, the great work that God is using to educate angels in divine wisdom is your salvation and your redemption. This is only one flicker of all this glory in the face of Christ. There's so much there. Now, we can only see and behold God's attributes from the vantage point of safety, having been forgiven and declared righteous through justification, hidden safely in Christ by union with him. That's the only place from which we may, we may safely look upon the glory of God. I'm reminded of Moses. Show me your glory. And God says, well, I'm not to hide you in this split rock. And you can't even look when I'm passing by. But once I've passed by, you can take a quick look then, but stay within that split rock. And, of course, this is what inspired the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Christ is our split rock. We hide in Him in order to view God's glory from a place of safety and security. You see, when the Holy Spirit shows us just who Christ is, the eternal, only begotten Son of God, come to earth in our nature, to bear the curse that we incurred and to reap what we had sowed morally that we might reap what he sowed in righteousness. When the Holy Spirit shows us that this Nazarene hanging on that tree is pumping out his heart's blood onto that dusty Judean soil in order to make real objective justice satisfied on behalf of our sins, that changes you forever. When the Holy Spirit shows you that, you will never be the same. That is the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is the Holy Spirit giving you the discernment to see what the atonement's all about. One glance in that direction, you are a saved person forever. 
Now, can you see why scriptures make the knowledge of Christ? That is what consists of true religion. And Christ is God. To know him is to know God. To deny him is to not know God. It's just that simple. Christ in our nature, incarnate for the purpose of bringing us to God and recovering the glory of God to us. That's what we must see by the Holy Spirit's power. That is what it means to be a saved person. Now, our text tells us that this is not something that happens by human seeking. It doesn't happen uh, by investigating different areas of religious philosophy. In order for this to happen, in order to have the glory of God seen in the face of Christ, there must be a sovereign revelation by God himself. Notice what it says in verse 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Our text alludes to the primordial darkness. See, when it says God is the one who said light shall shine out of darkness, our text alludes to that primordial darkness described in Genesis 1, 2 and 3. Where the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And, and what God was doing couldn't even be seen by those with eyes. And God said, in an act of fiat decretive power, God said, let there be light. There was no flicker, no coal, no ember, no spark anywhere that could be improved or expanded to be light shining on the creation. God declared, let there be light. You see, this, this so also, this is like the dead sinner in his darkness, his self-deception. That sooty veil of the Edenic lie still is over his heart. He cannot escape that with his own effort. And so God, in his mighty sovereignty, says, let there be light. And that light shines into the heart. It floods the soul of man. It floods into our heart. And for the first time in our life, we see who God really is in the face of Christ. When a man is brought to recognize Christ, he will love and worship him. In so doing, he will be made like him. See, we do not look at Christ simply as a religious truth or a fact we may add to our life. To see Christ in this way is to be instantly given a faculty of sight and savor and affection and taste, which makes us regard Christ as our highest treasure. That is what it means to be saved, to have this faculty planted in us. spiritually dead sinner cannot generate his own light. We're warned in the book of Isaiah that those who generate their own religious light will lie down in torment. God must be the source of light. Psalm 36, 9, in thy light we see light. We cannot use our natural light to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is sovereignly generated. It requires a discerning work of the Spirit for us to see that light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You do not need that spiritual discernment to see the wonders of the Grand Tetons or a coral reef or a thunderstorm or a rainbow. That's something we can perceive naturally and be thrilled by and see its grandeur. But to see the glory of God in the face of Christ requires a work of God. 
You see, this is where the church so often has gone astray in church history. Being born again has been likened to a decision that you make having come in contact with the body of truth. Well, there is some truth to that. We must accept and believe and be convinced that the facts concerning Christ's historic life are real, are produced by God, are part of human history. But does my decision to accept that body of truth about Christ's historic life, does that have the power to regenerate me, causing me to be born again? I have many Roman Catholic friends. And they will tell you they believe in Christ's virgin birth. They believe in his righteous, sinless life, his, his death and his resurrection. But that is not what they're hoping in alone for salvation. They're also spreading and distributing the weight of their soul over sacraments and penance and other things. And so the story of Christ is just one little support stone in all their group of pebbles that they're resting on. It's just one little stone they're resting on. True faith repudiates and rejects all sources of support for the soul but Christ alone. You do not have true faith unless you repudiate everything else you're trusting in for salvation. Otherwise, it's a hodgepodge, a mishmash, a mix of things you're relying upon. And so our text is informing us that salvation is by divine revelation. It's not simply a matter of accepting recorded facts about Jesus' life. We must see Him as God in the flesh. We must see Him as the glory of God, as our substitute, as our vicarious, suffering substitute who accomplished the satisfaction of justice on our behalf. And, and the wrath of God was quenched and absorbed into Christ's person by God's own doing. Under an act of God's moral government, Christ was sent to be that propitiation. And that is the mark of God's love, according to 1 John 4. There's no greater love than to send the Son to be that propitiation. What does it take to be able to see Christ as He really is, in His true identity, as God, as man, as Creator, as Redeemer, as coming judge, as the reflection of God's glory? Well, we get some insights into this by Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 17, where Peter goes, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's Peter really grasping Christ's glorious identity. And I like what Spurgeon says about Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Peter had not arrived at his belief by mere reasoning. Flesh and blood had not worked out the problem. There had been a revelation to him from the Father who is in heaven. To know the Lord in mere doctrinal statement, there is no divine teaching required. But Peter's full assurance of his Lord's nature and his Lord's mission was no theory in Peter's head. This truth was written on Peter's heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, brethren, is it, is it a reach to say that's also true of everyone in this room is born again? That the Holy Spirit is written on your heart, the true identity of Christ and Christ's mission to come to save sinners? You in particular as well. See, that's the Holy Spirit's work. Paul also alludes to this in his own testimony in Galatians 1 where he says, When he was pleased, who separated me from his mother's womb and called me to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach his gospel among the Gentiles. Paul is suggesting that God had a timetable of grace 
And at the right time, God revealed the Son of God to Paul, revealed in him, as it says. Uh, I'm a fan of James Haldane, that great Scottish divine. And James Haldane gives a warning a couple of centuries ago that's very fitting for today. Haldane says, many today believe in an historical Jesus who are ignorant of the character of God. The power of the gospel is to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is his true character. Many trust in Christ precisely as the Jews trusted in Moses, merely as an historical person who founded their religion. Those who hold to that gospel are strangers to the truth and still in love with the world. That's sobering, isn't it? I think this pushes us back to the introduction this morning that Edwards is correct. That those affections, those affections which drive the Christian life, those affections, those heart affections, that savor and taste that was planted in you at salvation is a key mark of being born again. Another warning is given by Howell Harris, another divine 200 years in the past. Howell Harris was the most persecuted street preacher in the history of Wales And this is what Harris says. Nature may have a superficial knowledge and illumination of the Savior. The natural man may be active and do something for him. But to love the cross, to suffer with Christ, to follow Jesus to the streets of Jerusalem, to Golgotha, as he stoops dumb before his shearers, so that your spirit feeds on his flesh and blood and humiliation. That is a work of God's spirit in you. See, Edwards outlines this in his book as well. The false professor, the hypocrite, can speculate about things of Christ, but he never feeds his soul upon the things of Christ. He never dines with Christ. He never feeds upon the gospel, saying it is true food. He's still in love with the bogus bread spoken of in Isaiah 55. How long will you love what is worthless? He's still in love with bogus bread. See, only this implanting of a new nature, a new faculty, a new savor for the things of God can cause us to hunger after Christ and pursue Him amidst all of our trials. The wonderful news is that God's shining, God's activity of shining into the darkness of our hearts, it dispels that darkness. It removes the sinner's enmity and hostility. Just as in the Old Testament, God said, let there be light at the beginning of creation week. In the New Testament, God became light for us. The living word was made flesh on earth. Jesus is our light. You'd be surprised how many times in the New Testament, Christ is described as light as the sun, the shining sun, and so on. So at the moment of conversion, God floods the heart with light. This guarantees that you became a new creature. The result is a knowledge of God that is experimental. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And see, that expels what's remaining of the Edenic lie. To taste God's goodness in Christ dispels the darkness. That Edenic lie which said God is not good is given the boot by the sight of God's glory in Christ. It is expelled from the heart. The veil is lifted. The satanically induced blindness is removed. 
and the knowledge of God is given to the sinner. And from now on, God describes you as an unveiled one. In the passage that Pastor Milton read for us, it says that the veil has been lifted for us. And now we are called to a life of beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is your vocation. That is your calling. Your calling has begun at that moment of salvation. You are to labor to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Go to Scripture and meditate for that purpose. This is your preparation to be an effective and powerful witness. This is your preparation to be as lights in a generation of grumblers and complainers. This is your preparation to declare the excellence of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is your preparation for glory. It's your preparation for your heart to be enlarged, to take in more glory. Because the glory you're going to have to take in in heaven is beyond what you can calculate. It is a weight so great, so massive. God is going to sink you into a shoreless sea of His love. And it requires an enlarged heart to experience that. And so we begin taking in His glory now. This is described briefly in a verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where it says in verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? You're going to be given a resurrection body like Jesus Christ and you are going to be made morally conformed to the image of Christ so that you can enjoy Him perfectly, please Him perfectly, praise Him perfectly. That's where we're headed. And that's why we must be beholders of glory now. This is our vocation. To behold God's glory now is our fitness to behold God's glory then. See, this new sight that God has given you has shown you true treasure. It's accomplished what God wanted to do in the first place. Enable you to see what God wants you to see. He wants you to see the infinite value and divine excellence of eternal things. He wants to show that to you. And see, we, we have sometimes we have Roman Catholic ideas of repentance. That if we're sorry enough, if we grovel enough, if our remorse is great enough, then God says, okay, we'll release you from that sin, even though you've done it a billion times. See, that's not the biblical view of repentance. True repentance is a bi-directional turning where we turn from idols to serve the living God. It's a bi-directional turning in which God has shown us what true treasure is, His glory in the face of Christ. And as we see the infinite wealth of that true treasure, we are ashamed. We do weep for having loved idols and we turn from them. You cannot turn from idols until you've seen treasure. You cannot turn from idols until you've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is true repentance. You see, this is why it's so essential to see this glory for sanctification. Because all your battles in the Christian life to have stamina and endurance amidst trial, to keep saying no to the same temptation that's been hounding you, your success in those trials and temptations depends greatly upon your ability of spiritual sight and savor. When you take in the glory of God in Scripture, you are fortifying yourself against sin and defeat. When you take in the glory of Christ in Scripture, you're getting a steel rod installed in your backbone to say no to sin and compromise. 
You will smash your idols because you see true treasure. This battle that we're in down here is all mainly at the level of spiritual sight. Your ability to see and savor and apprehend the glory of God in the face of Christ keeps you on track, keeps you running with endurance. See, Christ is bringing us nearer and nearer to God until one day we will enjoy this amazing union with Him. And right now, God is deepening your passion for His glory. He's increasing it. Are you cooperating with that purpose? When Christ came to earth, your cause was on His heart. That was to make you His bride. And once we've seen that, then God's cause, His own glory, becomes our cause. That's precisely what it means to have a passion for His glory. God's cause becomes our cause. And then we hunger and thirst to see others take hold of that treasure. Don't you long to see your neighbors, friends, and unsaved relatives delivered from idolatry? Don't you long for that? You, you do anything to see them delivered from idolatry and come into a vision of God's glory as their true treasure. Well, how we praise God that the work done in Christ has reversed that threefold forfeiture. Now the sight of God's glory has been restored to us by a sovereign act of grace. And now our passion... Our hunger, our appetite for God's glory has been planted in us. It is our supreme treasure. It is what we pursue. And we look forward to the day when we'll reflect that glory perfectly in heaven. Amen? May God give us grace to pursue the Lord in this way, for this is indeed God's purpose. Amen. Thanks so much, Jazz. Awesome message. Let's uh, bow in prayer and have our uh, ushers prepare to take up the offering. Lord, we thank you so much for the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we thank you that you have spoken 